every parent, regardless of their race or ethnicity, their financial background, like we all want the same thing, which is to make sure that our kid has the best educational experience as possible. Welcome to Family to Family. This is a podcast for families, by families, on topics and questions about the education system in Ohio. I'm your host, Tom Capretta, coming to you from the Ohio Statewide Family Engagement Center in the Center on Education and Training for Employment at The Ohio State University. Now let's get sharing, family to family. Hi, Farah. Hi, Tom. Are you ready for another episode of Family to Family? I sure am. I'm actually super excited for today's episode because it centers on a topic that's near and dear to my heart, families navigating special education system. Oh, I agree. It can be such a daunting, scary, anxiety-inducing process, and families really rely on their schools to provide them with accurate and unbiased information. Exactly. To make sure students and families have the information they need, access to additional resources, and have input in the process requires strong planning, communication, and partnership between schools and families. There's a lot to unpack here, and we know every family and child's story is unique. Are you ready to jump in and hear a couple of these family experiences? I sure am. Let's get sharing family family. My name is Amy Welly. You can call me Amy. Amy is a parent from Northwest Ohio. So I am the mom of six. My second child, when he was probably about 18 months old, we started noticing that there were some things that didn't quite sit right, like some differences in him. Like, I mean, he was a smart, amazing, like child it's just certain things just didn't quite click and we had some questions and concerns so when he was about 18 months old we had um started with early intervention after early intervention when he started preschool we're like okay you know he'll do good in preschool which i mean he did but we had some behavioral issues and some more concerns it can be scary for any parent to begin recognizing concerns in their child's behavior Here, Amy shares just how scary and confusing addressing these concerns can be. So his pediatrician had actually sent him down to Nationwide Behavioral Developmental Center. We did the autism evaluation not once, but twice, because the first time that we did it, the doctor that did it said that if she was a betting person, she was only 50% positive that my son was autistic. And 50% didn't sit right with me because, I mean, that's, that's way too much, like, you know, 50%. There's so much that can happen. So we did the evaluation twice. And the second time that we did it, she gathered information from his teacher, which was at Lincoln. It was his very first full year at Lincoln and my first full year uh, meeting Michelle. So this is where Michelle being a godsend actually comes in. Finding your champion, a partner in your child's school, can make all the difference for making sure a child receives what they need to be successful. Nationwide had told me my child was not capable of learning. And not only that he was not capable of learning, that he would hinder the learning of other students in his classroom. And their recommendation was for me to take him out of the preschool that he was in, which was Lincoln Elementary, and put him in the Center for Autism and Dyslexia. So I went to 
Michelle first and his teacher. Like I got a meeting between both of them and I explained what Nationwide had told me. Michelle's response was, you leave that baby alone. You leave him here. So we did. My name is Christian Davis. Christian is a parent from Southwest Ohio. So I have nine children all together. I don't think I mentioned that, but I have nine children all together. I have two sets of twins. Four of my children are grown. So I have three children that were on educational IEPs, and I knew nothing about the IEP process. Um, I felt like I was getting kind of nowhere with the school. I felt like they were using a lot of the jargon or large vocabulary that at that point I wasn't really familiar with, nor were they really taking the time to sit down to work with me, right? To understand that process. So like manifestation hearing, like that's a term that's, you know, heavily used within IEPs that the average parent or even myself 10 years ago had no idea what that meant. But I went above and and just kind of like looked Googled manifestation hearing, or who can help me understand that process. Jargon is a common barrier to effective school-home communication, and there is no area in which this is more true than special education. While Amy found a partner in her child's school, let's hear about how Christian looked for a partner in the community. So then I reached out to our um, legal aid. So I encourage parents who have children that may require an educational or behavior IEP to reach out to their local legal aid because their local legal aid does have an educational department that will help you um, and represent you for free during like manifestation hearings. But again, that's nothing that my school, the school district didn't say, hey, we, we see that you're a parent that's struggling through the IEP process or you don't even know, you know how to advocate for IEP. Why don't you go ahead and reach out to legal aid and they can help you, right? Like that's free information. That's a free program. Everyone is entitled to that service. But my school district, they knew of it, but they were not helping me through it, if that makes sense. So I had to go out outside of the school community to find help to help me access a school program or a school resource. And then I started to also look to see what resources were available at the state level, because I realized that, you know, certain resources were only available by, again, zip code or school district. But then I wanted to know, well, if I live in the state of Ohio and, you know, you now have the Ohio Department of Education, what other resources are available to my children, regardless of what school district they're in? Like, are there resources that are state driven? and state accessible. We know families receive much of the information about what's going on in school from other families. It's actually one of the reasons why we started this podcast. Check out how Christian took her journey even further by connecting with other families. As soon as I found something out, I would literally go back out and just share it with the masses. Because I'm like, I can't be the only person or the only parent experiencing this, right? And so as I was finding out information to better help my children, I started having conversations with parents who had similar stories. And then that's how my support network was being shaped because now I have a mom that, you know, we, we're connected just because our kid has an IEP or our kid has behavior issues or, or medical issues 
Or, you know, I have a nephew that has autism. I didn't know anything about autism, but now I have a whole support network of parents that have children with autism. And so I'm learning as I'm educating my network, they're also educating me. His teacher, from that point on, like with the IEP, we made modifications to his IEP, but without modifications, his teacher made adaptions in the classroom for him that would help him learn without having to change his whole structure and routine and his entire plan. So like they made the adaptions in the classroom where, you know, he couldn't tolerate sitting on the carpet. So they let him sit in a chair on the carpet during carpet time. When he couldn't focus, they had like the little bean bag weighted lap pads. They put these lap pads on him that for whatever miracle purpose, it grounded him out and it let him sit there. They gave him stress balls. So when he started getting overstimulated or overwhelmed, they gave him the stress ball and he was able to squeeze the stress ball. And like I said, that was his first full year there. He was there for three years. Over the next few years of being there, anything that we needed for him, they were there. All I had to do is say, you know, hey, this is what's going on with JT. And they're like, they were there. Like, how can we help? What do we need to do? What do we need to do for him to succeed? Amy's experience provides a great example of a responsive and positive homeschool partnership. Her appreciation and respect for the teachers who proactively engaged and supported her child shines through here. If every school ever operated the same way Lincoln Preschool does, because they set the parents up for like, your child is going to succeed in this world. Your child is special. Your child is loved. Your child is our goal. So they give the parents this sense of hope for their kids. And if every school could operate the way Lincoln does, there would be no issues in the educational system. I think that the biggest benefit, at least for my children, is that now my perspective has shifted. Like, you know, there's a saying, when you know better, you do better. And I literally honestly believe that. I think as a parent, I became super frustrated. One one child in particular, my youngest, he's nine now, um, but he was having a lot of trouble with the school that he was at, but he was having a lot of trouble adapting. And I think as a parent, you know, I was so fixated, like, oh my God, this is a good school. I want my kids to go to good school. They have to go to a good school, best education. Every parent, regardless of their race or ethnicity, their financial background, like we all want the same thing, which is to make sure that our kid has the best educational experience as possible. Christian makes a good point about wanting kids to have the best educational experience possible. He or she emphasizes supporting your child's learning and ensuring their school is the right fit. But with that being said, it may not be a good fit for your child. And the more I started to realize and and educate myself on you know, your child's learning styles or your child's temperament or, you know, however your child can adapt, then I was able to understand my child a lot better. And once I began to understand my child as an individual and focus on what their educational needs were, then their experience became a whole lot better. (music) 
so once we get to kindergarten, our world crashed with him because it was, you know, he was in a different building, different teachers, different staff. Here, Amy discusses that even after establishing great partnerships with teachers and staff at a child's school, transitions to a new grade or building are inevitable. Ensuring the continuity of services and establishing new relationships takes a lot of communication. So for the first nine weeks, it was pretty rough. It was trial and error. It was me advocating for my child. Like, no, like, don't let him do this. They would let him sleep his entire school day. I'm like, no, he's going to fall behind. Like everything that he's learned, he's going to lose. So we finally got it to where I'm like, no, you need to get him up where they realize, no, this is a behavioral thing. This child shouldn't be sleeping the whole day to like the principal literally had to go in the classroom. I'm like, get him up, make him stand up beside his desk. And when she did realized he's not sleeping, he's acting like he is because he grabbed the corner of his desk and picked his desk up with him. So again, like I said in the beginning, the doctor that initially diagnosed him with autism said he was not capable of learning and he was going to hinder the learning of other students. My child, just this week, we were given an assessment by his teacher that, you know, my first grader is in the end of a third grade reading level. My first grader is one of the top scholars in his classroom. My first grader is one of the top math students in his classroom. Through the struggles and everything, you know, with the teachers, with trying to get, you know, what he needed. This year, I had his intervention specialist look at me and ask me, are the goals on this IEP accurate? Because this is not the child that I see. Are the goals accurate? He did that. Like, as a parent, I'm proud, but he did that. He has teachers at the school and a parent that's going to be like, no, this isn't working. We're going to do what we need to do for him to succeed. Christian wraps up our family conversations with a call to action. Continue to seek answers and never take no or never take I don't know as an answer. Just continue to seek answers. Um, You know, if you're not getting heard at your local level or within your school district, you know, go to your board. If you're not being heard at the board level, you know, go to the state. If you're not being heard at, at your state level, you know, look to see what other resources are available in other states and advocate for those resources to become available in your own state. And then, you know, and not to get like political, because I'm, I'm not a political person. But what I will say is that, you know, we elect board members, we elect, you know, mayors, and we elect city hall members for a reason. And a lot of times, what I found out is, sometimes they are completely clueless about real issues that are, you know, affecting everyday communities. And so you have to share your story. Whenever there's a platform for you to be able to share your story, please do that so that it can be heard. We now welcome Dr. Kenyana Walker. Dr. Walker is a colleague at the Center on Education and Training for Employment here at Ohio State and a frequent collaborator with the Ohio Statewide Family Engagement Center. I'll let Dr. Walker introduce herself and her work now. My name is Dr. Walker. I'm a nationally certified school psychologist, but I'm also uh, licensed to practice in the state of Ohio. I'm clinically trained to provide psychoeducational mental health, behavioral, and social-emotional supports and services to students. 
I'm also trained in working to build systems uh, and also working to address systems that impacts uh, students' educational experiences. I have past experience with partnering with both families and educators. I'm also a skilled researcher and consultant, and currently I'm the Director of Oversight and Professional Development for the Howell Parent Mentor Project, which pretty much means I have extensive experience uh, working with early learners, uh, students with disabilities, and students who are identified as being minoritized. I really enjoyed the podcast because I believe that it was a realistic depiction of uh, family experiences with our education system, more specifically with special education. We have times where families will uh, have wonderful experiences. They share those experiences. And then we have times where families don't have great experiences. So I appreciated kind of both of those perspectives that were shared by the parents and caregivers. I was not surprised to hear the mention of maybe a first evaluation of a student being about 50% accurate. Uh, One thing I've often told parents is when I evaluate your kiddos or caregivers, I should say, it's a snapshot of many conditions of that day. So that would be, how does the student look in the classroom? So then we need an educator perspective as well, but we also need a parent perspective. And so that first evaluation that was mentioned did not have all of those perspectives, but it's not surprised that the second one was a bit more accurate because it had information from a caregiver, from an educator, and also just some observations about the student that was external. What I can appreciate is that this podcast allows us to see that each student is different. And so that means that when we consider each student and their individual assets and their individual needs, when we take that approach, when schools take that, that approach and even caregivers, it allows us to identify realistic expectations and goals, but it also allows us to kind of center around that shared understanding of that student and that student's needs and the expectations that we can set for that. And so that requires everyone to be on the same page and are able to identify and agree upon what each student's strengths are, where they have areas of opportunity for growth, because we all do, regardless of whether or not we need specialized services. That then allows us to really accurately assess kind of what we need to do in order to prepare that student for their success in their future, regardless of wherever they're transitioning to. There were many things that struck me, but um, I'll highlight one. So we have a, a parent who has at least three children who are identified with disabilities. We have to look at each student individually. Cookie cutter approaches to evaluation, cookie cutter approaches to interventions, number one, are not really legal <laughs> based on the law, but they're not best practice. Um, and so to hear a mom really articulate that, uh, in a way that may be lost on other folks, I think is very helpful. This is a parent who really highlighted what it looks and feels like to get lost in the sauce with special education, not really understanding the process, acronyms that were just not, you know, uh, reachable, really created barriers um, just for her to be engaged. We don't want parents Googling because not everything online is true. It's not reputable, it's not research-based, it's not even uh, legal-based. But if we go to the Ohio Department of Education's website and, and go and really look at what rights families have in terms of special education, they have a process in place when a family or caregiver does not agree with the results from the evaluation or they don't agree 
with a stance that a school has taken. And that is really the first place to start to look for those resources, start going through um, the school first and then going through the Ohio Department of Education because they can work to bring both sides together. They can facilitate meetings, they can moderate meetings and those types of things. I would suggest doing that before going to Google. What we know, what research tells us is that parents create informal networks out of need and necessity. And what I heard that parent saying is what I learned, I share with everybody. So not only did the parent share that negative experience, but the parent was able to then share all of the information that she found with other parents. And research tells us that parents who form social networks form them because they have a shared interest, they have a shared experience, but they also want to make sure that other parents have access to the information uh, that they have, which I think is absolutely phenomenal. So transitions in general and general education are difficult, amplified many times for our students uh, who have disabilities. And they can be very difficult, particularly because research tells us that we don't plan well for transitions. We don't have a lot of plans. And that goes back to the fact that we don't spend a lot of time really understanding each student individually to understand, again, where are their strengths? Where are the areas of opportunities? What are their current goals? What experiences do we need to, need to expose them to in school so that they can transition successfully? But we also have to be realistic. Being realistic doesn't mean that we lower standards. Being realistic means that educators, parents, and caregivers really understand what is the capacity of this student and how can we continue to expand that capacity? But how can we also understand what are their options? And those are conversations that can happen really early on as we're meeting for our annual IEP meetings. We are not required to wait until the quote unquote transition time to discuss transitions. But if we have a more realistic picture of our student, their strengths and assets, what they wanna do, and sometimes we can do that by including them in the actual meetings, <laughs> and then what the care caregivers and parents want to do, we could have a much better, robust, accurate transition plan in place. But we really should be mindful of the fact that we want them to be best positioned when they leave high school, whether it's at 20, 18, or, or even 21, because we know some of them can stay a little longer. The special education jargon, alphabet soup. Most people don't know that even folks that, are, that only work in like general education sometimes don't understand the acronyms that we use for special education, let alone some of the terms uh, that we use, because some of the terms that we use are so specific to uh, small amounts of student populations, and we throw them around as if they are as common as the word the, and they're not. I think that if we could put ourselves in a parent or, or caregiver's position, we would really understand the small tweaks that we need to make in order to make these conversations accessible. Sometimes providing uh, families with just a brief kind of one or two page dictionary of the terms that we use related to special education research says is extremely helpful. If we come to those tables with a shared understanding of the language that we are using, imagine the game changer that would be for families. Because I will tell you, research tells us that an empowered parent is an engaged parent. And if we create a culture of shared language, and collaboration, we are not only going to empower parents, research tells us that educators themselves 
are empowered. They are more deeply invested and their expectations tends to adjust when parents and students are at the table speaking the same language. Thank you, Christian, Amy, and Dr. Walker for sharing with us today. While the special education process remains a complex and confusing journey for many families, today we heard two approaches from families who partnered with others and worked hard to ensure that their children had what they needed to be successful. I know it can be difficult not knowing what we don't know, but by expecting and engaging in ongoing communication with teachers and school staff, as well as continuing to seek answers to stay informed and involved in the process, we can ensure that students with disabilities get the quality education to which they're entitled. Thanks for listening to Family to Family. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you're listening today. Your feedback is welcome and appreciated. For more information and resources from topics discussed in today's show, please visit ohiofamiliesengage.osu.edu forward slash podcast. Along with that web address, our social media handles and email are in the show notes. Follow us on Twitter at Ohio Engage and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Ohio SFEC. I'm Tom and that's Farah and this has been Family to Family. Family to Family is a production of the Ohio Statewide Family Engagement Center in the Center on Education and Training for Employment at The Ohio State University. 